good to be with you this morning. Um, if you have your Bibles, you could turn to Luke chapter 14. We are slowly but surely um, making our way through this book, and um, I've gained a greater appreciation of my Lord and Savior through this process. And if the Lord tarries, I hope to look at the um, book of Acts after this, because it was written by Luke as a sequel to his gospel. And interestingly enough, if you combine the content with Luke and Acts, it's actually a greater percentage of the New Testament than uh, the Pauline epistles. So we, we like to think of Paul as a as the most prolific New Testament author, and surely he had a lot to share with us in the New Testament. But Luke, when he wrote, uh, he wrote a lot. I think that probably comes from being a doctor and being detail-oriented. But today, um, uh, and Jesus, Jesus really gets to the heart of different manners. And today we're going to talk about the spirit versus the letter of the law. So if you are keeping notes, you might want to put that as your title today. And then the first point that we're going to deal with is Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath. Now Jesus, I never really counted up the number of times that he does this, healing people on the Sabbath, but I think he does it quite an awful lot. And I think his main purpose was to clarify some things about the Sabbath. You remember at one point he said um, the, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so um, a lot of his healing, if not all of it, clarifies spiritual points for us. And we will begin to read our passage in just a moment. But first of all, let's commit ourselves to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be here today. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word. We thank you for the freedom that we have here in the United States of America to still boldly proclaim your word without fear of reprisal. But Lord, we pray that um, we would continue to be bold even uh, if reprisals come because you've warned us that there would be a time when there would be itching ears, when people would be lovers of themselves, when they would only want to hear what what sounds good to them. And may we embrace everything about this message that you have for us today and be changed people for having been here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Alright, so starting in verse 1 of chapter 14 of Luke, let's look at the first five verses. And it came to pass, as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day, that they watched him. First point, when were they not watching him? I think they were always watching him because they always wanted to see if he would trip up. Because they hated his popularity. They hated that he took away their popularity. And uh, so they wanted to see what would happen. And behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy. And Jesus answered and spake unto the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they held their peace. And he took him 
and healed him and let him go. And he answered them saying, Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? So again, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, they were very particular about their Sabbath day. And they, and they got upset with him for healing on the Sabbath day in, in various ways. So even though they don't necessarily openly express indignation in this particular case, he is sensing it. There's a, there's a verse that says that he knows the hearts of every man and doesn't need anyone to share what's in a man's heart because he knows the hearts of every man. And so he's no, he no, no doubt is doing a preemptive work of talking to them about priorities on the Sabbath day. If he's saying if your animal falls into a pit, you're going to take him out because it's required work. It's not that you're doing work for the sake of work. So basically he's saying doing good for others is not a conditional thing. It's not a six-day-a-week thing. It's a seven-day-a-week thing. There's a church that I speak at three or four times a year, and one thing I really like about them is one Sunday a month, they have a community Sunday. And what that means is that instead of their normal morning church service, they go out into the community and do service projects for the community. And I, I just think that's a great model because it's showing that this is Jesus. You know, we often say, well, we need to preach the gospel. And that's true. It is true. We can't go too far um, the way of St. Francis of Assisi who said, preach the gospel always and if necessary, use words. Words are important. Jesus used words often. Most of my, the first four books of the New Testament here in my Bible are read because Jesus had a lot to say. So he's not saying don't use words. But what he is saying is that your actions will show what you believe. I've heard it said that we don't always believe what we profess, but we always practice what we believe. Your beliefs will come out as people interact with you, as they get to know you, as they watch you. Bruce Carroll put out a song in the 90s that said, I'd rather see a sermon than to hear one any day. The thing is, when, 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 you, when people see your life as a sermon, then they will be more apt to hear what you have to say. And so, Jesus was not afraid to do this controversial thing of healing on the Sabbath day because he didn't care what people thought of him. As a matter of fact, there are a couple of different times when the Pharisees approached him and they were like, we know that you're not a respecter of persons and you don't care about anyone's opinion. You know, they no doubt were saying it sarcastically, but... But they knew that there was nothing they could do to make Jesus be the kind of Jesus that they wanted him to be. And we need to be careful as believers to let Jesus be Jesus 
and listen to what he's saying and not make him what we wish he would be. A lot of times in this day and age we say God is love and surely that is true. But Jesus said some of the most controversial things of his day and he would not have been nailed to a cross if God is love was the extent of the story. You see, you can't understand the true love of God until you understand the judgment that you'd be under without God. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because we see that the judgment of all the world was laid upon Him. And we focus on the physical part because that's the part we understand. That's the part we can comprehend. If you want to, you can read detailed accounts of what crucifixion is about. So you can understand the physical part. But praise be to God, we never have to fully grasp the spiritual significance of God forsaking us because He forsook His Son in that moment in time so that He would never have to forsake us. As a matter of fact, He says to us today, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And He's able to do that because of what Jesus did. So as we go through our lives and as we think about what it means to serve God, May we learn from these Pharisees the difference between true abiding faith and legalism. They were more concerned about uh, fulfilling the letter of the law than helping those in need. And this isn't the only time they had this happen. There was another time when, when Jesus confronted them because he said, you give your, all your money to the temple and you say, it, it's a gift from God, but you neglect your parents. And he said that you're blind hypocrites for doing that. You see, we're supposed to put God first, but putting God first does not mean neglecting the responsibilities of our families. As a matter of fact, we show that we put God first by fulfilling the responsibilities God has given us. I just want to read you this. Um, well, let's look at a cross-reference for this. Uh, in Mark chapter 3, verse 4, and uh, whichever of the men uh, gets there first can stand and read that for us. Mark chapter 3, verse 4. And he said unto them, It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath days, or, is it, or to do evil, to save life or to kill. So again, just this underscoring idea that Jesus is saying, if it comes to helping other people or not working, you should help other people. It would be evil to leave someone in need and not care for them. What does John say in his epistle? He says, if you have the means with you to help others and you say to them, be warmed and be filled, but you don't give them a jacket or food to eat, then you are not doing your duty before God. And so we see, again, Jesus is saying, it's about the heart of the matter. I just want to read you this story from today in the Word. It says, the story was told some years ago of a pastor who found the roads blocked on Sunday morning and was forced to skate on the river to get to church, which he did. When he arrived, the elders of the church were horrified 
that their preacher had skated on the Lord's Day. After the service, they held a meeting where the pastor explained that it was either skate to church or not go at all. Finally, one elder asked, Did you enjoy it? When the preacher answered no, the board decided it was all right. (laughs) So that's just a, a little humorous example of how we can carry legalism too far. Um, and I know, I've heard that if you go to Israel, they have certain things set up, like in their buildings, they have the elevators set to work automatically and stop at every floor, because even pushing an elevator button is considered work on the Sabbath. And just little things like that, that where they kind of, you know, it might have started out with good intentions, but it carries it a little bit too far. And uh, Jesus is going to continue on this theme for our second point, which is talking about the need to be humble. And so let's look at um, Luke 14, 6 to 10. Continuing our our passage here. Uh, Luke 14... 6 to 10. Okay. And they could not answer him again to these things. And he put forth a parable to those that were bidden when he marked how they chose out the chief rooms, saying unto them, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, Sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee and him come and say to thee, Give this man place, and thou shalt, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room, that when he that bade thee cometh, he may say, Friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. And, of course, Jesus at this point is actually quoting a principle that we see in Proverbs, chapter 25, verse 6. And I won't uh, turn there, but just to look at that, he's basically quoting that. Talking about choosing the low place and then having having someone give you a better seat I've um, I've had some interesting experiences with that because it seems to me being in a wheelchair and needing handicapped seating that depending on where I go I'm either in the front row or the back row and there's a whole lot of places in between that I can't sit so <laughs> But it's kind of an interesting reminder that God wants us to start with humility in mind. And as he's talking to these Pharisees, he's talking about people that that love themselves, that love attention, they love getting all the accolades. Um, There was even mention in this Bible study that I went to this weekend and Mark about how they would use their position to take advantage of widows by getting control of their estates and taking all of their money and doing it in the name of their position and 
you know, leaving these widows destitute. And Jesus is basically saying, no, the way that you show that you love me is by caring for others. And I find it interesting, starting in verse 6, and they could not answer again to these things. How many times do you read that? That the people were so taken by what Jesus said that there was no response they could give. I remember one particular time when the temple guards were sent to arrest Jesus and they came back empty-handed and the question was asked, well, why didn't you arrest him? And they said, no man spoke like this man. And that just underscores the fact that he was not going to be taken until the time came. That he literally gave himself up and allowed himself to be arrested and then tortured on our behalf. And um, as we think about this need for humility, I just, I think about that, how when you go to a wedding, often the best seats in the house, they're reserved. I, I, I know I have done that at least once or twice where I've sat somewhere only to realize afterwards that, that it's reserved seating and it's the wrong place. And I know how embarrassing that can be at times. So I can definitely see the practical application of this. But I also know what it's like to be sitting in the back somewhere and have someone walk up to me and say, can you see all right? Because we can put you in the front. And I just think about what Jesus said in another passage where he says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Everything about our modern way of doing things is climb the ladder and whoever you hit on the way up, it's okay. Just step on them and let them fall off. But Jesus says, he who would be great among you, let him be the least. And uh, if we could look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 5, we will see a correlation to this as Paul lays it out. Philippians chapter 2, 3 to 5. Uh, no, that's that's fine. So we see in this in this passage, Paul saying, "Don't put yourself first. Esteem others better than yourselves." And and I I kind of think about this sometimes because I'm like, well, a lot of times I don't do too bad of esteeming people as good as myself. And another passage, Jesus says, "Love your neighbor as yourself." But Paul's taking this a step further and he says, 
Esteem them better than yourself. Jesus always esteemed others better than himself. He would sometimes get away to pray, but I remember one time, at least, he got away to pray and the people found out where he was and they followed him. And he didn't shoo them away. He blessed them, did some healing, talked to them. I think also of Jesus with the children. The disciples thought, well, Jesus is too important for little children. And it says, we were noticing in Mark, that it says that Jesus was indignant at the disciples that they would do that. And he said, no, in fact, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And as much as my family has taught me to love children, I know there have been times when my nephews and nieces have been annoying to me and I wish that they weren't around. And then I'm brought back to what Jesus said. And if that's His attitude toward children, should it not be ours? Our culture screams that children are an inconvenience and I fear that that attitude has creeped into the church as well. But the Bible says, Lo, children are a heritage of the Lord. And the fruit of the womb is His reward. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. Now, this is something that we all have to deal with before the Lord. But I would simply ask you to go before the Lord and to ask Him, what is my attitude toward children? All the while keeping in mind that you were a child once. And that we need to have the attitude of a child as we pursue God. Not childish, not immaturity, but rather a wonder and excitement for the things of God. And a believing faith that is simple and doesn't make the simple complicated. We need to esteem others better than themselves, better than ourselves. If we all did that, the world would be so much more harmonious. Instead, our general attitude is, I'm at least as good as they are. And too often it slips even further and says, I'm better than they are. They're so bad. But if I look back and see the things that I've done in my past, I'm humbled to know that God has forgiven me of those things, those sins that were wrong. And if He's forgiven me those great trespasses, how can I not forgive those with whom I interact with on a daily basis? 
On a visit to the Beethoven Museum in Bonn, a young American student became fascinated by the piano on which Beethoven had composed some of his greatest works. She asked the museum guard if she could play a few bars on it. She, accomplished the re she accompanied the request with a lavish tip, and the guard agreed. The girl went to the panel and tinkled out the opening of the Moonlight Sonata. As she was leaving, she said to the guard, I suppose all the great pianists who come here want to play the piano. The guard shook his head and said, Paderowski, the famed Polish pianist, was here a few years ago, and he said he wasn't worthy to touch it. I think of what John the Baptist said when people said, are you the Christ? And he said, no, I only clear the way for Christ. There's coming one who, the lashet of whose sandal I am unworthy to stoop down and unloose. Do we realize the humility of that? He also, when his disciples left him to follow Jesus, it didn't bother him. Instead, he said, he must increase and I must decrease. I think it was Hudson Taylor, though it could have been someone else who once said that we could get a lot more done for God if we were not so concerned about who got the credit. You know, it doesn't matter what I accomplish in my life. All that matters is what God is able to accomplish through me. There's a song that's on the radio right now. It's one of my favorites. It's by Big Daddy Weave, and he says this. He says, to tell you my story is to tell of him. That's really what it's about, isn't it? Without him, there is no story. As a matter of fact, our English word for the past is what? His story. And it is. He's working out his plan through the ages. How wonderful to know that we need not fear. That he knows exactly what he is doing. He went to the cross, gave himself. And three days later, just as he said he would do, he rose from the dead. Yet it says, even as they went to the Mount of Olives for his ascension into heaven, some doubted. To me, that, that, that's in some ways mind-boggling. Like, I'm sitting here saying, he's standing right before them. He's ascending into heaven. But it still says, some doubted. You know, it's things like that that show me that the Bible was not 
written by man for man, but it was written by man under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because there's too much failure in there to have written, been written by a mere man. Remember all the disciples, before the day before he died, they said, we will not forsake you. Especially Peter, he's like, I'm never going to leave you. And just a few hours later, as Jesus said, he, be, he denied knowing Jesus three times. Praise be to God for his mercy. He restored Peter for when he rose from the dead. He said to the women, go tell the disciples and Peter, I'm going before you into Galilee. And we know that Peter preached under the influence of the Holy Spirit powerfully on the day of Pentecost, everything that he didn't say that night. For he said, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified by wicked hands, both Lord and Christ. And he said this was, this was because of the foreknowledge and plan of God that this happened. Praise the Lord for that. All right, our third and final section, Luke 14, 11 to 15. In this section, Jesus is talking about the blessings that will come when we do what he asks and when we obey him. He says, for whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased. And he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Then he said also to him that bade him, When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, nor thy kinsmen, neither thy rich neighbors, lest they bid thee again, and a recompense be made thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for thou for they cannot recompense thee. For thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. And when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. This is a challenge to me. Because my thought process is much like most humans. That I want to get credit for the good things I do. That I want to do good things to, the, to those who will do good things back to me. But this is what God says. Do good to those who cannot help you. Who cannot repay you. I've taken to doing more anonymous giving just for that purpose. Because it's not about me. It's about being able to meet specific needs that I see. And if they don't know that I help them, then they can't repay me. <laughs> and there's a certain blessing that I've found in that. But it just shows that God's economy is so different from ours. 
you, you just look all through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and you will find that the people that the world would choose are not chosen by God. He chose Moses who was a, a stuttering shepherd. It's been said of Moses that he spent 40 years in Egypt thinking he was somebody. And 40 years in the desert learning he was nobody as a shepherd. And then he finished his life with 40 years in the desert with the Israelites learning that God could take a nobody and make him into a somebody. And sometimes God does that. He gives us an impossible calling and then He allows us to fulfill it through His Spirit so that He gets the credit. I remember being like Moses. I remember saying, Lord, I can't do anything for You. I'm, I'm crippled. And God said, wait a second. I, I made Your mouth. I have a plan. So you go, you do what I ask you to do, and I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what to say. I still remember the first time I got up in front of people in public. I was singing a special number at camp, and for a family camp, and I was so nervous that I sang with my back to the audience. Obviously, I've come a long way. But there's still times, and I praise God for this, there's still times when I'm nervous getting up to speak, and I don't think, I think if I wasn't at least a little nervous, there'd be a problem. Because you see, it's not about me. It's about Him. And He who has called me will be faithful to do through me what He's called me to do. That's, it's, it's such an exciting thing to know what God has called you to do and to do it. It's not easy. I went through quite a journey. If anyone's interested in hearing more of the full story, they can ask me because I'd love to share it. But at the end of the day, I have found that doing what God wants you to do is a whole lot better than resisting Him. I wasted a lot of time resisting Him. And I would encourage each and every one of you not to do that. And I would say also that we sometimes slip back into that. We have to always be on our guard. When I was 14, I made a commitment to begin to share the gospel wherever I could. When I was 28, I went through a really rough time. It was like God asking me, saying, okay, you've said for 14 years, you've told people for 14 years that you believe that I called you, that you believe that I have a plan. Now I want you to know that you believe it. And I came out of that hard time stronger and even more able to share the Word of God. 
as we think about this humility and putting the untouchables first in a way and doing things not for man but for God can we look at Matthew chapter 6 verses 1 to 4 if somebody finds it they can read it for us Matthew 6 verses 1 to 4 this is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talking about how we should do our good works and I think it illuminates a little bit more of the truth that Jesus is bringing forth in our Luke 14 passage. Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be a secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. So once again, just like in our passage today, we see that the reward comes from God. And there's a passage in Proverbs that says, The blessing of the Lord maketh rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. There's a lot of ways in the world's eyes to become rich. But if we sacrifice godly principles to become rich, we we will not actually become rich because we will be poor in the most important areas of our lives. I'm not a health and wealth guy. I don't believe that if you do everything right, you're just going to be wealthy beyond your wildest dreams. But I can say this, that Jesus said, if you're faithful in little, he'll make you faithful also in much, and I believe that to be a true principle. So if you're faithful with the funds that he's given you, he may very well give you more to be faithful of. Remember Joseph. He was faithful in every situation in which he was given. He was a faithful shepherd of his father's sheep. He was a faithful steward of Pharaoh, of Potiphar's household. He was even a faithful steward of the prison. Can you imagine having such confidence in a prisoner that as the warden of the prison, you put this prisoner in charge of every other prisoner? And it doesn't say that, Mo, that Joseph did this because he was some great man. No, if you, look, if you look in the story, you will see this phrase. But God was with him. So if you want to be great, then you have to let God do his work. John Kenneth Gilbraith, in his autobiography, A Life in Our Times, illustrates the devotion of Emily Gloria Wilson, his family's housekeeper. It had been a wearying day, and I asked Emily to hold all telephone calls while I had a nap. And before I continue, I will just say that this, this man was an economist who was looked um, to by various heads of state, including presidents. So that will give you context. For this story. 
says, it has been a wearying day. And I asked Emily to hold all telephone calls while I had a nap. Shortly thereafter, the phone rang. Lyndon Johnson was calling from the White House. Get me Ken Galbraith, he said. This is Lyndon Johnson. He is sleeping, Mr. President. He said not to disturb him. Well, wake him up. I want to talk to him. No, Mr. President, I work for him. Not for you. When I called the president back, he could scarcely contain his pleasure. Tell that woman I want her here in the White House. Just as this woman was so loyal to her boss that she wouldn't even wake him up for the president, so we should be so loyal to our boss, Jesus Christ, that we won't go against his will for anything in the world. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who, who said, we will not bow down before your idol, O king. Our God is able to deliver us. But to me, the key phrase of the passage is this, but even if he does not, we will not bow down. Even if he does not. There are several times throughout the book of Acts and mentioned in the epistles when God delivered Paul and saved his life. But tradition tells us that Nero took Paul's head and ended his life shortly after he wrote the second epistle of Timothy. Paul could have gone free. There was nothing that could have held him in prison, but he appealed to Caesar because he felt that God had called him to share the gospel, even with Caesar, and it cost him his life. There may be coming a day when we may be called to give up our lives. Jesus Christ. He calls us to do it in little ways today when we, as we said before, put others before ourselves. Only in dying can we be born to eternal life. For if we died with Him, Romans 6 says, we will also live with Him. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet the life that I live is not me, but Christ in me. And the life I live now is by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That really puts things in perspective to realize that Jesus died for us and we've been crucified with Christ. Colossians chapter 3 puts it this way, we've been hid with Christ in God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, 
that if we have been bought by Christ, we should no longer live to ourselves, but to the one who died and rose again for us. It was for us. No matter who you are today, you're serving somebody. Could be yourself, could be the devil, could be your money. But I hope with all my heart that it's Jesus Christ. We are made to serve. That's what we are made for. So the question isn't, are you serving? The question is, who? Who are you serving? The question isn't, how many laws have you kept? Because we can't keep them all. The question is, who are you trusting? My plea to you is that you would trust Jesus Christ with your life. And that if you do trust Him, are you living like you trust Him? Do you filter every decision with, what would Jesus do? I don't know if you ever heard of the classic book, In His Steps, by Charles M. Sheldon, but I've read it a few times throughout my life. I often wonder how things would be different if we would literally preface the things we do with that phrase. I'll admit that I don't always, but the encouragement is there. Peter says in one of his epistles that he left us an example that we should walk in his steps. May we encourage one another as, as we attempt to do just that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. We thank you for meeting us where we are and dealing with us on the level that we can understand. We just ask that you would bless each one of these people here. We thank you for reaching out to us when we were lost. That yet, when we were yet without strength, you died for the ungodly. Pray that you would be with us as we go our separate ways. That you would bless our fellowship this afternoon. We love you. We want to serve you. And we just ask that you would go with us wherever we go as you did with the disciples on the Emmaus Road. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.